But let's get back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. So we've talked about how we've moved from death to life, particularly the individual. We were dead in our trespasses, but he made you alive, and now he's created us, uh, his workmanship, to do good works. Now, the parallel to that is 11 through 22, where he talks about Gentiles and the Gentile plight. Now, that has meaning for us because we're Gentile Christians. Uh, occasionally, I'll run into somebody who has Jewish ethnicity or heritage, but very rarely in Oklahoma have I, have I had that, that kind of uh, run into that person. So in almost every instance, 99.9% .9 of the churches I'm in, the students I've had, they're Gentile Christians. And that's the people he's referring to here, beginning in 2.11, as being in this terrible situation. We, we had this predicament we were in. So let's look at the predicament here, beginning at verse 11 and, and going through verse 13. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, uh, those who were called uncircumcision by those uh, who are called circumcision, which was made by human hands. That's the way of referring to Jews. So you were... You are, you are the Gentiles in the flesh, that is, those who are called the uncircumcision by the Jewish people, those who have experienced the circumcision made by human hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and estranged from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that might not sound quite as dark as what we saw in 2, 1 through 3. You know, you were dead, you were sons of wrath, you were children of disobedience, all that. But this is pretty bad. That because you were separated from the, from the citizenship of Israel, because you had no connection to Israel, you were cut off from the prophets, you were cut off from the covenants of promise, and in a sense, you were without God and without hope in the world. So that's a pretty bad situation. And notice he says there, he starts this section, therefore, remember. The therefore would be like, in light of experiencing salvation by grace. In light of everything he just said in 2, 1 through 10. Therefore, remember. And I think it's good to remember. I've already said I think we should try to remember what life was like before we were believers, before we had this relationship with God, before we were part of a community of faith. Sometimes it's good to remember what life was like before so you can appreciate the grace that you've been shown. If you forget who you were and what the predicament you were in, it tends to lessen your, your understanding of grace that you've experienced. So therefore, remember. And loss of memory can sort of be intentional or unintentional. Sometimes it's intentional. We intentionally forget things. Um, when I was growing up, the most famous person from my hometown, his name is Harvey Erie. Now you're probably thinking, that's pretty sad if that's the most famous person for your hometown because you've never heard of Harvey Erie. Um, 
you might know him by his acting name, Lee Majors. Oh, yeah. Now, you got to be of a certain... This doesn't work with my students at OBU. They, they, don't, they don't get Lee Majors. But um, it, it, will, it, I will, it will put you into an age group. But do you remember a show called Big Valley? Yeah. He was Heath Barkley in Big Valley. That was Lee Majors. And uh, then... And now this was big stuff coming from my, you know, 13,000 people hometown in the mountains of southeastern Kentucky, having somebody who made it in Hollywood. And then he was the $6 million man. You remember that show? Steve Austin, I think, was his name in the show. The $6 million man. And, and maybe most impressive to, to some others, he was married to Farrah Fawcett who was then Farrah Fawcett Majors for a time when they were married, but she was like really popular. Uh, she was sort of the iconic Charlie's Angels. You remember her? Well, he was married to her. So he was a pretty famous guy. And he, he went to my, the high school I went to. He played football at the high school where I attended. And even today, if you go back to, to my hometown, the football field is Lee Majors Field. And on a sign, it has something about Harvey Yeary. But it's called Lee Majors Field because that's, that's, what he's not, you know, that's what he became famous for. But here's the point of that. It would burn. My, like my dad was real close in age to him, knew him. Several of my dad's friends played football with him, and they were friends. But he went off to Hollywood, you know. And... And then when he would do interviews, and, and it wasn't like social media, so you couldn't see it, but like it'd be in like, like the Sunday newspaper, like Parade magazine, doing an interview with Lee Majors, and they'd be talking about where he was from, and he would say, Knoxville, Tennessee. He wouldn't even say Middlesboro, because I'm sure in his mind he thought nobody would know where that is, and the town large, closest to us was actually Knoxville, Tennessee. So he, he'd it would come out, he's from Knoxville, Tennessee, and it would just burn uh, like my dad and his friends up that, that it was like he's forgot where he came from it's a bad thing to forget where you come from and he was doing it intentionally but then there's uh, there's the the, the the things we should remember I think about um, Jacob wrestling with God or with an angel of God at the Jabbok River you know, to get his blessing and he goes away from that experience but how's he go away with a limp he wouldn't forget that experience he would remember it and you know like when the Israelites cross over the Jordan into the promised land they set up 12 stones you know as a memorial Paul had a thorn in the flesh and these were instruments of memory so that he wouldn't get arrogant so he would remember about God's grace or whatever exactly it was so we, we have to be careful about forgetting. The, the saddest is, of course, the loss of memory that is completely unintended. Uh, and I think of Alzheimer's as sort of the, you know, the, just the most dramatic of that. And how awful it is to, to, to lose that, to lose your memory, to lose a sense of your identity and the people who love you and care for you. It's, it's, just, it's just very, very difficult. And we've seen it... Uh, my, my dad went through that near the end. I, last time I went in to see him in, uh, last summer, 
was June, I guess, uh, he would talk about me to me. And I would say, Dad, it's me. And he just could not. He might, for a second, he'd look at me, and then he'd just go back sort of talking about me. It was clear to me he never figured out that that's me. And uh, then he'd have his moments where he, my, my younger son, Levi, was with me. <laughs> he was sitting at the bed, foot of the bed. And my dad just kind of looked up out of nowhere. And he said to Levi, he said, did you get that shirt I sent you? Of course, he hadn't sent Levi a shirt. And Levi was just completely caught off guard and didn't know what to say. And he said, no. He just didn't know what to say. And my dad got real mad at him, really hurt his feelings, because he's like, well, you didn't even care. I wish I hadn't even sent it now. You know, it's just, you could, you could see it. I saw it with my mother-in-law, who had a much more severe case of Alzheimer's uh, that eventually brought about her death. I, I just see what that complete loss of memory does to a human's identity and their sense of security, of feeling safe. It's just, it's just so hard. Um, and, and so he, he says here, remember. Remembering is good. It's a good thing to remember. Remember that formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh and, and that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and estranged from the covenants of promise. Covenants of promise would be like God's promises to Abraham. You know, that your descendants will be great. And, uh, or, or God's uh, his covenant with Moses uh, that he makes at Sinai. Or a covenant with David that, that one of David's seed will sit on his throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Or the new covenant that he talks about in Jeremiah 31. These would be the covenants of promise that Paul is thinking Gentiles are separated from all those covenants. They don't have any access to them because they're not Jewish. So this was the Gentile predicament. So what's God's work of grace? Well, think about it now. In 2, 1 through 10, the predicament was we were dead. So what did God do for us in Christ? He made us alive. So now the predicament is you're separated from, Gentiles are separated from Israel. So what would be the work of grace that would meet that need? It would be to tear down the wall that divides Jew and Gentile. And so let's, let's look starting at verse 14. For he is our peace. The one who made the two one. So that's the first thing he's, he did. This is what God's work of grace. He made the two one. And he destroyed the dividing wall of partition, that's two, that is the hostility in his flesh. And then the third is, he destroyed or he nullified the law of commandments in the decrees. In order that he might create the two in him into one new man, making peace. So... Our need was, we were, we were separated, we were alienated from Israel, and by virtue of that, we were alienated from God. So what has God done for us in Christ? First, he made the two into one. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. 
or at least Jew and Gentile, that distinction no longer matters. Neither does uh, male or female, neither does slave nor free. Those kinds of distinctions no longer make a difference. And then he says, continuing on in verse 14, and he destroyed uh, the dividing wall of partition. That is, in Jesus' death, he did more than just die for my personal sins. He was doing something much grander. In his death, he was tearing down, also, in addition to dying for sins, he was tearing down the wall that divides Jew and Gentile. So that we could be unified, so that we could share in the promises that he gave to Israel. And, and, he, and he makes a very interesting addition here. He tore down the dividing wall of partition. That is the hostility in his flesh. If, if you have people who are divided, and, and sometimes walls are put up in order to divide. I mean, you think about the, the work on a wall on our southern border. Uh, I think about uh, the the western or the uh, the wall in between western uh, and eastern Germany, you know that was torn down in the Reagan uh, era in the Reagan administration. That wall divided north, divided east and west, divided uh, socialist communist from democracy. So so we we understand how walls can be erected in order to divide. And if all you do is knock down a wall between people, there is certainly no guarantee that suddenly they're going to be one. In fact, you might find you've got a worse problem. But in Jesus tearing down the wall, he didn't just tear down the wall, he destroyed also the hostility, or at least he made it possible to destroy the hostility so that Jew and Gentile could now coexist and even be one people of God. So he didn't just tear down the wall, but he removed the hostility. And then the third thing he says that he did is, and he nullified the law of commandments in the decrees. Or he canceled, in, in a sense, he canceled our debt. And, and the word that I'm translating here in the decrees or with reference to the decrees is a word that means like an IOU. It's like he canceled our debt. He tore down the dividing wall, and he made a way for, for our debt, particularly Gentiles' debt, to be removed, to be nullified, to be canceled. I mean, it's a sweet deal we got here. And, and that picture for me, and I know I used it when I did Galatians here at some point not that long ago, because um, I use it every time when I'm thinking about Galatians, cause, or Colossians, excuse me, Colossians 2.14. We did that just a few years ago. But in, in, I'll use my hometown again. In, in my hometown, uh, we had a fruit market called Sailor's Fruit Market. Mr. Sailor, you know, the man owned it himself, and his son was like his partner and worked there. And that's where my mother bought all her fruits and vegetables and things like honey uh, and my grandfather, my dad's dad, actually had honeybees, and he'd sell honey there uh, to Mr. Sailor. But that's where my mom always shopped for those kinds of items. 
and my mom had a kind of had a pretty hard time because my dad uh, particularly when he was drinking just went through whatever money we had she worked tried to keep the family above above the water and he'd just blow it all and if he didn't blow it on drinking he'd blow it gambling and put her in a very very difficult situation she's not the only woman to deal with this kind of situation but she had to deal with it and, and my mother really cared about having a good name and people thinking the best of her and the family but on occasion she she would write a check that would bounce often related to my dad spending money that she didn't know he'd spent and in those days when I was I don't know eight nine years old if you bounced a check at Sailor's Fruit Market or really anywhere they would put that check on the wall I mean that was the way they would motivate you to pay your debt to come in and and pay what you owed because if you you come in pay them what they'd give you the check they'd take it down hand it to you debt was settled and my mother I remember going in there to Sailor's Fruit Market and her going in and giving him paying money and him handing her a check that had bounced and and you know I'm sure I, my imagination plays as much into this as my memory but in my mind she was so relieved to get that check down because everybody who went to Sailor's Fruit Market could see who bounced a check in there that's a pretty good picture of, of his description here of what Jesus has done to our debt those of us who are Gentiles who didn't have access to God he tore down the dividing wall we have access to God and he's made a way for our debt to be canceled that IOU to be covered that bounce check to be taken off the wall that's what God's work of grace has been for the, the Gentiles he says he goes on there in verse 15 in order that he might create the two into one new man making peace and that he might reconcile the two in one body that is the church body here I would say is the church in one body to God through the cross having killed the enmity or hostility in him I told you that he didn't just tear down the wall but he removed the, his, the hostility the the killer or the no, excuse me the one killed killed the hostility that's the picture he uses in Jesus death him being killed he killed the hostility and that was the real problem it wasn't the wall it was the hostility that the wall symbolized but he tore down the wall and he killed the hostility so that Jew and Gentile could be unified could be one people of God and after coming he preached the good news he pre he proclaimed the good news of peace to you those who are far off and peace to those who are near those who are far off are Gentiles those who are near Jews because through him we have access the two in one spirit to the Father that was his work of grace on behalf of Gentiles so we were alienated we were hostile to, to the citizens of Israel we, did, we, didn't, we had no access to God or the covenants of grace. And he tore down that wall and he removed the hostility. That was his work of grace. So what's the consequence of that? Verse 19. Therefore, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
but you are fellow citizens of the saints and fellow members of the household of God. Fellow members of the household of God. Now the household is made up of both Jew and Gentile. It was just a Jewish house. Now it's made up of Jew and Gentile. Being built up upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the whole picture here is like temple imagery, temple language. That now, because the dividing wall has been torn down, now there is a new people of God that, is, that God has constructed. And, and God's Spirit fills this new, this new people of God like, like a household. It's the picture of like the temple. And of course, Paul likes that image that you are the temple of God. He can say that about the church. So this is the consequence. We, we, we are now a multicultural people of God. And like a temple where the presence of God dwells, a, a household. We were members of God's household. It, it's a beautiful image. And, you know, we don't see that multicultural element so easily in most of the churches that I've been in in Oklahoma. We tend to be similar, a lot similar, at least ethnically. I, I'm sure we're diverse in lots of ways, but ethnically there's not as much diversity as you might find in some other parts of the country. But I remember a good, one of my former students, he came after Owen, not as good as Owen, but still good, uh, who pastors, uh, pastored First Baptist San Francisco for about six or seven years, did a great job there. And you can imagine, that's not an easy Southern Baptist church to pastor, First Baptist San Francisco, but he did a great job there. And I went out for a conference there, and... Uh, it was on my schedule Sunday morning I was going to First Baptist San Francisco to Ryan's church and got there and you know it was great seeing him talking to him meeting some folks so we sat down and they started to sing and for the first time you know I looked up at that choir and I was just struck by how, the diversity in that choir the, the, just the diversity of the colors of people's skins and, their, and the ethnicities that were represented there and I thought, that, that's a better representation of what heaven will look like. And that's possible because what Paul's talking about here. That dividing wall was torn down. That, that heavenly choir won't just be a Jewish choir. The way has been opened up for people of whatever ethnicity. One people of God. And uh, it's a beautiful picture. So... Um, that gets us through the theological, uh, well, it gets us close anyway. Yeah, and I got, I got several minutes to finish it off. So now we're looking at chapter 3. We're moving right along here to uh, chapter 3. And Paul does one more thing before he gets to the exhortation section. He wants to offer a prayer on uh, to God on behalf of his audience. Just like he did this morning. That was a prayer, right? That he, that he might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
and that he might enlighten the eyes of your heart to know what is the hope of his calling, to know that you are God's glorious inheritance among the saints, and to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power on behalf of you. That was the, this morning's sermon. Well, he's got one more prayer he wants to pray for them before he brings this letter to a conclusion. And so he starts, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, now pause there and go down to verse 14. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family or nation in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. Doesn't that sound like a prayer? Now go back to 3.1. You see the for this reason or because of this? What, 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 how does your translation open there at 3.1? For this reason? For this cause? Something like that? Now look at verse 14. Do you have the same phrase? Yeah, for this reason, because of this, for this cause. Here's why it's the same phrase there at 3.1 and 3.14. Because at 3.1, he starts to pray. He intended to start out, for this reason I bow my knee. I, Paul, the prisoner, uh, 3.1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, bow my knee to the Father. But he gets sidetracked. When he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. See, he's just been talking about how God tore down the dividing wall. He takes a detour instead of getting right to the prayer. And you can see it takes him about 13 verses to get back to the prayer. I can sympathize with Paul. I, I think I did that with my dog story earlier, you know. I, I was just trying to say about things coming to a conclusion, not just an end, and I could have just said my dog ate the last pages out of my Bible, but I wanted to tell you the whole story about going to Omaha and getting my our, our dog Macy, who died five years ago on the same night that Kansas State, see, that was a big diversion. But I find it's nice, it, I've been doing this a long time, if you're lecturing for an hour and 15 minutes to like freshman Bible, you gotta figure out techniques to keep their interest. And if you just hammer content all the time, they start to glaze over. But you start telling them a dog story, and they perk up. So I'll, I'll drop in a little dog story here or there, something about, you know, back home, town, IOU on the wall, something like that. Well, Paul does that kind of thing too, so I, I think there's precedent here for me to do it, because Paul does it. So for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and here's where he begins then to talk about his commission. He says, surely you've heard about the activity of administrating God's grace that was given to me for you. And guess what word he uses here? That same word that we were talking about back there in chapter 1 where I was saying activity of administrating or administration or plan, or it's that same word again. Only then it was God who was the one who was act actively administrating uh, the, the, the fullness of the times. Remember? But now, this is part of what just blows Paul away. God, the ultimate administrator of his purposes, can hand off some of the stewardship, some, some of the administration to others. 
it's called his calling on them and he's done that for Paul and so Paul now has a stewardship Paul is, is an administrator now he's under the administrator God but God has given him his own administrator administration that was given to me for you that is the mystery made known to me by revelation <clears throat> now he's talking about the Gentiles He's talking about this stewardship that God had given him. He's talking about his commission to be apostle to the Gentiles. And where did he find that out? The Damascus Road. That's the revelation he's talking about. When, when the Lord appeared to him in a bright light, and, and, and he says, who, who are you, Lord? And, and you know, and the he tells him to go to Damascus and why are you persecuting me? That revelation, that bright blinding light, that's the revelation he's talking about when he says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. Well, that's what he was just doing back there in chapter 2, talking about tearing down the wall so the Gentiles could get in. He's apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he's just written about briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs together with Israel, fellow members together of one body, and fellow partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus. He was called to be apostle to the Gentiles. And here's the thing that blows Paul's mind. That God has revealed to him and to the other apostles just in recent times this final plan of God that, that, that Jew and Gentile would be fellow heirs, fellow partakers, fellow sharers in the grace of God you 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 can't get that just from reading the Old Testament you would think that there's a place for Gentiles but you wouldn't think that Jew and Gentile would be fellow heirs Paul says this wasn't revealed yet this is something that God has made known to the apostles and prophets in more recent times now, it's true that God promised to Abraham that your seed will be a blessing to all nations. He tells in Isaiah's prophecies, you're to be a light to the Gentiles. But that they would stand, you and Gentile, on, on the same footing, on the same ground? Just look at this. That they would be fellow members of one body, fellow heirs together with Israel, fellow partakers in the promise side by side that kind of equality Jew and Gentile that's that's not you wouldn't get that just from reading the Old Testament that's something that has been made more clear to the Apostles and prophets and Paul feels unworthy to be an administrator of all this grace to Gentiles he says in verse 7 I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power although I am less than the least of all the saints I am the least of all the saints 
Paul says, I'm just so unworthy to have this administration that God has given to me. Um, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that when he describes how Jesus died, uh, was buried, was raised, and appeared to the 500, you know, at one time he appeared to the apostles, he goes to all that, and Paul says, and last of all, he appeared to me as one born out of time, like he was just born too late, and thus he wasn't one of the first, uh, he could have been one of the 12, but he was just born out of time, and he wasn't one of the 12, and, and he had that Damascus revelation after everybody else had seen the risen Lord. And because of that, he says, I'm least of the apostles. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, like 8, 9, somewhere through there. That's one thing to say you're least of the apostles. That's a pretty elite group, you know? That's like uh, the, last, the last guy on the roster of an NFL team saying, I'm the least of the, you know, Dallas Cowboys. Well, you're probably still an elite athlete making millions of dollars. That's, that's a pretty elite group. So to say you're least of the apostles, yeah, okay. I guess that's, that's pretty, putting yourself on the low point, but not that low. But what's he say here? I'm the least of all the saints. That's a much larger category. That's all the people of God. And he's putting himself down as the least of those. It just expresses Paul's unworthiness. And of course, it all goes back to his life as a persecutor of the Christians. He just not, does not feel worthy of all this grace. Picking it up in verse 8 again. Although I am less than the least of all of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the untraceable riches of Christ. Now, I don't know what words your translation uses here in verse 8 maybe boundless uh, I, I like unsearchable untraceable you got something else incomprehensible Paul likes he, we can't know for sure if he made up this word but this word only occurs two times that I know of in any literature and both times it's Paul the other times in Romans 11 but it's a word one of the it, it's a compound word but one of the words means footprint like like a like a footprint in the in the sand now it's negated so the pick he gives he puts a prefix on it that means untrackable like there's the footprint like it's like tracking an animal if you see the prints you can track the animal like right you can find it you can trace it out because it's left footprints but he's talking about the, the, as, he, as he describes it here, the riches of Christ, the, the untrackable, unsearchable riches of Christ, they're too great to track. They're so great, you can't see the prints. It's too, too profound, too, too unsearchable, untraceable. And that's why he feels so unworthy. God has made it known, but they're so great, if he hadn't made it known, we couldn't have searched them out. I, I like that word untraceable, untrackable. So like trying to track an animal that leaves no tracks. That, that's the picture he paints here of the riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, 
the beautifully complex wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the in the heavenlies according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord and you know Paul's just it's just these ideas are just so expansive uh, here and, and it's hard to know exactly what he's referring to but he but he's clearly referring to this call to be apostle to the Gentiles this administration that God had given to him and and this what God wanted to do with Gentiles was hidden in ages past but has now been made known through the church the church is is a testimony to the beautifully complex or manifold wisdom of God that people of different ethnicities different of people back different people of different backgrounds people with different of different political persuasions people from different universities I mean you actually have OU and OSU fans in the same churches in Oklahoma and except for you know one Sunday or one, excuse me one Saturday usually what is it November in the past when they play but that's not even gonna happen anymore we ought to be able to get along better now that they're not going to be playing uh, once they get to the SEC I don't guess they'll be playing basketball either but I mean the fact hey I'm sure they're I know I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but I'm sure there are Republicans and Democrats in this room tonight and I know some of you Republicans are thinking how could a Democrat be a Christian but I'm telling you they're, they're it's possible or some Democrats might be thinking the same thing about Republicans. I, I'm not going to get into that debate tonight. I'm sure not chasing that doggy. But the way that God can take people with such diverse backgrounds and diverse ideas and make one people of God out of them is a testimony to the manifold wisdom of God, the beautifully complex wisdom of God. And the greater the diversity the greater it displays this wisdom of God and the power of God. And, and Paul sees himself as having been given this charge, this administration uh, as apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 12, in him, in him and through faith in him, we have access to God with boldness and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory now here's just a just a side note here um, on this last on this line in verse 13 I ask you not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are for your glory and you might think well why would they be discouraged for Paul because of his sufferings why would they personally as a church feel discouraged for Paul because of his sufferings Maybe it's just because they feel a kinship with him and they know what a difficult time he's having. But maybe it's more. If you look in Acts 21, 29, remember what kind of letter this is? Here's a test. This is called a blank letter. Prison letter. Paul is imprisoned when he writes this letter. But we didn't talk about this morning how he got imprisoned. But if he's imprisoned in Rome when he writes this letter... If you go back to Acts 21, that's where he gets arrested in Jerusalem. He ends up then in prison in Caesarea for two years, and they change from Felix to Festus. A new governor comes into power, and, and Paul tries to get a hearing before him, and Festus is not going to let him go, and that's when Paul appeals to Caesar. 
And that's when he gets taken to Rome. Remember the shipwreck? But he finally gets there. And then he's under house arrest for two years in Rome. And we don't really know for sure what happened to Paul after that. But it's that Roman imprisonment that most likely is the place where he is when he writes this letter. So what led to his imprisonment? How did he get arrested? If you look in Acts 21, 29... He went back to Jerusalem carrying an offering for the church at Jerusalem that he'd been taking from his Gentile churches. And, and uh, James, the leader of the church, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem said, you know, Paul, people are saying bad things about you. They think you're not a loyal Jew. They think you're too liberal. Why don't you go to the temple and make an offering there and good faith show them that you've not given up on your people. You're still you know part of the Jewish people and you adhere to the Jewish law he said okay so he goes to make the and apparently he takes with him some of the people he's traveling with which includes Trophimus the Ephesian so this would be a Gentile that's traveling with him and Paul gets arrested and the charge is that he he took these people to parts of the temple where they're not allowed to go and and the person that's mentioned specifically by name is Trophimus the Ephesian so one of their own is the person that Paul was charged with that led to his arrest that led to his imprisonment an Ephesian now he doesn't say all that but I can see that in Acts and maybe if one of their own was the cause of his arrest and his imprisonment, maybe they do feel guilty because of that. Maybe they feel like they're responsible in some way because of one of their own. And maybe that's why he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, for which, which are for your glory. It's going to work out for, for your good, he says. That's Acts twenty one twenty nine. You can check it later. But I just... The first time I think that sort of struck me, it, it was, it's an interesting connection to the Ephesian church where he's writing a letter from prison and that imprisonment may have been because of one of their own. And then the prayer, and we'll end with this tonight. For this reason, he's finally back to, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. See? He started at 3-1 for this reason, and he got sidetracked. And he went through all his commission and his unworthiness for this commission. Now he's ready to have his prayer. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every nation in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So his prayer here is for Christ's strength to dwell in their inner person. For, the strength, for strength and for Christ to dwell in their hearts, in their inner person. He says, with the result that you be rooted and established in love, and you may have power together with all the Lord's saints to grasp, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. So that's the second prayer here. That Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you might come to understand the boundless nature of God's love.
that it knows no bounds. That's why he uses this language to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. The early church father Origen says about this that the cross contains each of those. How high? He says it's only by Jesus' death on the cross that he was able to ascend. How deep? It's only by his death on the cross that he was able to, to descend to the dead and to experience death. How wide? It's, it, and he says the word of the cross has reached the corners of the earth, the fullest extent of the earth. That's the height and depth and width of God's love pictured in the cross. Only in the cross can you see it. That's what Origen, uh, the church father, said about this passage, which I like very much. As a commentary on it, you could look at Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, uh, where he talks about there, what can separate us from the love of God? Can height or depth? Can things past? Can things present? Can, can creatures? He, and ultimately, is nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. It knows no bounds. He, he prays that they know that. And then the third thing he prays is that God would fill them with God, that the Father would fill them with God's fullness. Look at 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. It's hard to describe what exactly that means, that you might be filled with all the fullness of the fullness of God. But, but whatever it means, the full measure of God's divine presence and of God's divine power might somehow be made known to you, that you might be aware that you are filled with the full measure of his presence and his power. That's how I would best describe it. And then we have this beautiful doxology or statement of praise to God in verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I can't beat that tonight. So I'll end on that. So, uh, Owen, that's exactly where I needed to get to tonight. All right, so uh, what time again in the worship center for the session? Six. And he says I can go till 7.30. I might, but I won't go over 7.30. I promise you that. Uh, so that'll be it. And that, that's, that's where I needed to get to. So let me ask a blessing and we'll be dismissed. And I'll hopefully see you Wednesday night. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.